C.S. Lewis before he was C.S. Lewis. Let's talk about it with professor, historian, and author Mark Knoll on Steve Brown, etc. He's an old white guy, an author, broadcaster, and seminary professor who's sick of religion. And he's brought friends. Please welcome Steve Brown, etc. And we are so glad you're here, and you're going to be so glad you're here, too, because we've got a great hour set up for you. In case you're wondering, I'm Steve, the aforementioned old white guy. Matthew Porter, our executive producer, is here. You wouldn't guess it, but uh, Matthew relies on an emotional support animal, specifically a roasted Thanksgiving turkey. He's gotten me through some hard times. <laughs> and our producer, Jinx, is in his little glass booth. He just got back from a business trip to Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Uh, Among Jinx, others. Jinx, did you, did you do any gambling? Well, not in Vegas, but at one of my other stops, I got some sushi from a 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> Our one-man IT department, John Myers, is in his tech bunker. John is thankful nothing broke here at Key Life during the Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, Dr. George Bingham is the president of Key Life. George would be thankful if you included Key Life in your Giving Tuesday plans next week. I would, that, what was that? I was going to consider them an emotional support animal. <laughs> <laughs> That's keylife.org slash Giving Tuesday. And then, of course, Catherine Wyatt is the soft feminine side of the program. In honor, I don't believe I'm going to read this. In, in honor of C.S. Lewis and Thanksgiving, Kathy has combined two classic books. The Problem of Pain and the Weight of Glory <laughs> into The Problem of Weight. God bless you, Steve Brown, for doing that. You know, Matthew, that was, you know, that was pretty okay. All right. Him. I'll take that. <laughs> hey, guys, we have a great guest. He's one of my heroes, but he's, he doesn't know that. He's Emeritus Professor of History at Wheaton College and the University of Notre Dame. He was a Protestant missionary to those Catholics. <laughs> and we'll talk about that later. And he was named by Time Magazine as one of the 25 most influential evangelicals in America. Mark has authored numerous books, and the latest, which I hold in my nicotine-stained fingers, is C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, 1935 to 1947. That sounds dull, <laughs> but it's not. If you are a C.S. Lewis fan, and I am, you're going to absolutely be blown away with this book. Mark, years ago, I became a, you know, I started taking the C.S. Lewis, New York C.S. Lewis Bulletin and became a subscribing member. 
And in those days, they had a questionnaire you filled out, and they asked, among other things, how many books did I have by and about C.S. Lewis? And at that time, I had every book that had ever been published about C.S. Lewis and by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> now, that has been a hundred years ago. <laughs> And 10 million books have been written, and I have read a lot of them. When I saw yours, I thought, well, nothing new, but it's always fun to think about C.S. Lewis. And I got into your book, and it's brand new. Listen, you're a miracle worker in a lot of ways, and one is you're able to say and give a perspective on something new about C.S. Lewis. Were you just drinking one night and, <laughs> and these ideas came to you? Well, uh, thank you. It's a privilege to be with you on your program. Uh, how did the idea arise? Um, like so many things in academic life, it came as a result of a request. Chris Mitchell was the director of the Wheaton College Center devoted to C.S. Lewis and his friends called the Wade Center. And he wanted to have a, a, a colloquium, a conference, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of C.S. Lewis's death, which people know was the same day as J.F. Kennedy's assassination, so 2013. Would I do a paper on something having to do with Lewis's uh, influence? I was working at the University of Notre Dame at the time, and uh, because of the good offices of Notre Dame, they were employing my wife, who was a librarian, as a part-time research assistant for myself. She said, uh, the job's okay, but the, but the boss is sometimes. <laughs> she was able to do research on the periodicals, newspapers, and magazines that reviewed the early works of C.S. Lewis. That is, C.S. Lewis before Mere Christianity is published and before the Narnia Tales. And those, uh, Lewis was popular beforehand, but those are the books that made him uh, super popular. I think my intent as someone who was a, a C.S. Lewis reader, not really a C.S. Lewis scholar, my intent was to push past what could be called C.S. Lewis adoration to C.S. Lewis explanation. Who, mm. who was reading C.S. Lewis? Why were they reading him? Which works of Lewis appealed to which uh, segments of the American population? And it turned out uh, very soon that there were real surprises. And I'm sure we'll get into those when we talk, talk about the book. But it was, it was an effort to, to uh, put Lewis back in history and, of course, to recognize his really uh, superlative talents, but to try to do something historical with how C.S. Lewis was received in, in the United States. You, uh, for those of you, and you got to read this book if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, Oh my! No, don't even go there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this this book uh, delves into how Catholics uh, received him, how mainline media—they don't do that anymore—received him, how Protestant mainline folks received him, and how evangelicals kicking and screaming eventually received him. And it's a fun book as you begin to. Let's start with Roman Catholics. Given your teaching uh, all those years at Notre Dame, uh, they were the first to, quote, discover C.S. Lewis and to laud 
what he was right. What started that? Well, Lewis became uh, well-known in America after the screw tape letters appeared in the United States. That was 1943. Before then, he had uh, been known in the U.S. through uh, more academic circles. He published a book on Paradise Lost. He published a book on uh, Renaissance romance, particularly the work of Edmund Spencer and the Fairy Queen. And there were, there were academics that included Catholics who were reading him. Once uh, the screw tape letters was published, and then Macmillan say, noticing that many people were buying the screw tape letters said, well, we've got to rush some of his other books in, into uh, uh, print. They published uh, the first, or maybe even the first two of the Space Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy. And then they began to publish also the, the broadcasts that were available as booklets where Lewis, uh, during uh, the Second World War, gave short talks uh, on the Christian faith. The Catholic uh, authors were, were the ones who uh, stood with almost everybody else in, in celebrating the, the screw tape letters and then the imaginative works. They were unusual, however, in that some of them saw connections between Lewis's academic work on Paradise Lost, his scholarship on the Renaissance uh, literature, and these popular Christian works directly addressing the uh, uh, 20th century. In fact, uh, certainly the most uh, illuminating essays published on C.S. Lewis in America until we get way, maybe 1915 following, came from a Catholic English professor at Canisius College in, in Buffalo and a Catholic literature professor from Marquette University in, in uh, Wisconsin, putting together what they knew about Lewis as an academic, studying Paradise Lost, studying Renaissance literature, and Lewis as a popular apologist for Christianity in the present day. And no one really else did that. Other academics were paying, a few academics were paying attention to Lewis. A lot of the public at large began to pay attention to Lewis with the screw tape letters. The Catholics were the only ones in this period who brought together the popular and the academic. And those were the days when, uh, when Roman Catholics and Protestants didn't get along very much, were very critical of each other's heritage. And C.S. Lewis, in those talks you mentioned that became the book Mere Christianity, really um, rose above all of that. He said, I'm going to talk about things about which all Christians agree and their importance and how they relate to real life. And I suspect that a lot of the, a lot of the, the Roman Catholics uh, were pleased that a Protestant would say something like that. Of course, Tolkien tried to convert him throughout their uh, friendship. Never quite got there, but he was close. <laughs> hey guys, the name of the book is C.S. Lewis in America. Readings and Reception, 1935 to 1947. And if you like C.S. Lewis, you're going to like this book. And if you don't know Mark Knoll, you're going to like him too. Hey, this is really hard work, so we're going to have some milk and cookies. Rest up, then we're coming back.
Hey, thanks for listening to Steve Brown, etc. And if you're enjoying the show, chances are your friends and family would too, right? So help us spread the word by sharing a link, clicking subscribe on YouTube. And if you think about it, drop us a review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify. We're pretty much everywhere. Hey, is there one called Podblaster? I mean, it feels like there should be, right? But like no E in Blaster. Just Blaster. 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 Anyhow, that's how the colons do it. Hi, this is Steve Brown. And in case you didn't know, one of the main reasons Key Life exists is to remind believers that God isn't mad at his children. Why am I telling you this? Because our weekly email, Key Life Connection, takes the best of the videos, articles, and puts them right in your inbox. We'd love for you to try it. It's free. Go to keylife.org slash subscribe. As I say and mean, say often and mean always, you always have a place at our table. Uh, we're uh, talking to professor, historian, author Mark Knoll, and his latest book is called C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, 1935 to 1947. Mark, as we think of C.S. Lewis, you kind of just take it as a given that everybody knows him and his his body of work but like when you take a step back I never actually thought about it until your book is like he straddles some very disparate sections of of of, of writing you know over here is academic and apologetics very intellectual very scholarly over here just broadly accessible fantasy and 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 science fiction even um, and and similarly as you've said, Different groups, different camps, you know, Catholics, non-Catholics embrace them for different reasons. But off-air, you were mentioning that there were corners of evangelicals, uh, Presbyterians, that were like a little bit arm's length at first. I wonder if you could dive into that. What was their uh, nervousness about Lewis? Sure. It's really interesting to to see the uh, reaction to Lewis uh, focused on the same thing amongst Catholic readers, and then amongst uh, the, the only evangelicals really who paid attention to Lewis were conservative Presbyterians, usually associated with Westminster Theological Seminary. In their journal, there are several articles that express a great deal of appreciation for, for Lewis. It, it's people who obviously love his, his learning, love his uh, wit, love the clarity of his prose, but they're nervous because their understanding of the Christian faith is and was that uh, uh, believers need to trust in God first before they understand how the world works and how salvation is brought. Catholics had a different view. They thought that all humans had a kind of natural understanding at some level of good and evil in the world. And that's actually where C.S. Lewis begins some of his academic work, but also some of his work for more popular. What becomes uh, the booklet that leads to mere Christianity begins by asking people, do you believe that some things are right and some things are wrong? Lewis goes on to say, everybody in the world believes that some things are right and some things are wrong. This natural understanding of right and wrong, he showed, could lead to Christian faith. 
That's very much similar to what Catholics from the time of Thomas Aquinas had taught about nature being uh, corrupt and needing salvation, but nature nonetheless giving a platform for people to approach God. That, uh, as Lewis explained it, made the conservative Presbyterians nervous. So you have these two groups. They both like C.S. Lewis. They both uh, hope that his basic Christian message can be expanded and explored. But one of them says, we really like the place where Lewis begins. The other says, we're nervous about the place where Lewis begins. <laughs> the ones who said we like the place where Lewis begins were Catholic reviewers who provided the most extensive and deepest understanding of Lewis in these early years of his exposure to American audiences. That is so, and it's so insightful. Uh, I, uh, for those of you who are, who are interested, and most of you are not, uh, <laughs> that is a classical argument between Reformed Calvinist and those who aren't, and it's called uh, presuppositional apologetics and classical apologetics. And, and uh, if you're ever asked that on a quiz show and you win any money, just remember 10% goes to Key Life. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I fell asleep while you were explaining. Uh, Mark, uh, one of the things that uh, I really appreciated, and uh, I, I think you reference it with C.S. Lewis, was um, his importance, uh, the importance he placed on understanding the historical setting of writings that he was analyzing. And there's a pretty big difference between the time when um, uh, America was first discovering Lewis and and now in terms of, I think you put it that, um, you know, Christian writers were not only expected to, you know, inform the Christian community, but even the general society at large. And we've come way away from that. Uh, you point out that now Christian writing is almost suspect, not just uh, ignored, but actually more of an almost hostile reaction. Can you kind of expand on that and the importance of the historical setting? Yes. I mean, we, we do live in quite a different era than the uh, 1930s and 40s when Lewis's work was uh, becoming popular in America. One of the things that other historians have pointed out, uh, George Marsden, uh, retired from Notre Dame also, uh, Alan Jacobs, literary scholar from Baylor, is that during the World War II era, general society was looking for a basis undergirding the American, the Allied sense that the Nazis, were, uh, the fascists were actually just pointing civilization in the wrong direction. Why was that? Well, there, there were practical economic military matters, but there were many people who said, what, what's the foundation? So we had in this era, era uh, T.S. Eliot, A.H. Auden, uh, uh, several Catholic authors, uh, Jewish authors even, who, who were saying, we need a basis for our Western civilization. And Lewis's voice was one of the most prominent ones saying, it's the Christian tradition that can provide a secure basis. Remember uh, in the United States, the, the uh, ideas of, of, of Dewey were becoming uh, kind of the relative approach to pragmatic philosophy. Freudianism was a kind of vogue. And these, these were intellectual ideas that were challenging the notion that there's a basis in Christianity and Western civilization 
And they were challenging the idea that you needed that, that basis. Lewis was able to articulate very powerfully that that basis still was good. And the fact that he could appeal to the general public, Time Magazine, the New York Times, widely circulating newspapers, as well as the Christian public, meant that, that it was unusual. I do think that today that can still be done, but it requires a great deal of skill, and, and there just is not the receptivity looking for that kind of basis as there was in the 1930s, and particularly the 1940s during World War II. But we may get there, right? The way the news is going. Well, well yes, we, I mean, you just, you just don't know. I think that's one of the things that uh, Lewis and other Christians pointed out. You, you, you just believers are supposed to do the work they're called to do. And in some sense, you leave to the Lord the effect that it will have. And because of the receptivity of the times, Lewis was, was really effective when he was. And he continues to be. I think that's actually re, uh, one of the remarkable things about uh, Lewis's books. Uh, Mere Christianity is still read. Uh, very widely. Narnia tales are still read. The problem of pain is still read. And others mm. on different tracks are still read who proclaim the straightforward Christian message. Mm. And as our culture sinks deeper and deeper into meaninglessness, darkness, annihilationism, it's a scary time. And in scary times, scary people ask questions. And if they're asking questions, and they are, give them Martin Ohl's book and one by C.S. Lewis, and they will rise up and call you blessed. And <laughs> don't go anywhere. Hey, thanks for listening to Steve Brown, etc. And if you're enjoying the show, would you help us let others know about it? You can share a link, click subscribe on our YouTube channel, or drop us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks much. Hi, this is Steve Brown, and I'm excited to tell you about a new offer from Key Life called <laughs> Living with Steve. Let me tell you the way it works. I travel with you wherever you go. If you need an entertaining conversation or even a sermon, there I am. That's the good news. The bad news is that it costs a million bucks. <laughs> but wait, there's good news. You can get everything I've just described with the Key Life app. And for a limited time, it's not a million dollars. It's free. Try it now at keylife.org app. Professor, historian, and author, Mark Knoll. Hey, Mark, uh, if people want to find you online, is there a place they could go? Well, I'm old enough that I, I really have never gotten into uh, social media. <laughs> uh, I, I think they, they could certainly uh, send a note to InterVarsity Press, and they, they would, uh, the publisher of the book, who's done a great job with the book, and that they could communicate that way. So forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of right. old and I enjoy being I get that. Listen, you don't have to explain, but you and I have to explain to everybody else. Write, write a letter. This <laughs> is a pen. Send it by the postmaster. <laughs> 
Mark, when I was reading in um, chapter two, the like a fresh wind chapter, this is just a comment on kind of following up on a couple of things that you said. I, I was just so struck, number one, by the number of, uh, I mean, major newspapers and periodicals um, who uh, that rather commented um about Lewis and about what he was writing and and uh, in very positive uh, in with very positive words and and struck as we said earlier struck by the fact that how on earth would we ever hope to see that same kind of thing happening nowadays because the media just does not seem to be remotely open-minded at all um, but I was really struck by that. And the other thing that I was struck by in that chapter was you were quoting a number of different individuals who at one point would say very positive things about him. And I think you've already touched on this as well, very positive things. And then almost like the next sentence, they were saying something that was negative. And I thought, that's odd, because usually, I mean, I felt like it was, because usually you know, you read something, you think, well, I, well, I really like this person. I want to continue to read. Or you think, no, nope, no, nope, not going to do this. And they're done. But they, there seemed to be this dichotomy or whatever of what was going on in, in the minds of people at that particular, at that particular time. Was that, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I'm just thinking that one of the most interesting reviews was uh, by the, the very celebrated poet and, and essayist W.H. Auden, that appeared in um, a literary journal, the Saturday Review. It was a review of Lewis's The Great Divorce. It's overwhelmingly positive, but he does pause for two or three paragraphs of, of critique. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, for example, he, he he does not like the idea that Lewis introduced the figure of Napoleon into this book, <laughs> an excellent historical figure. He did not like the, the fact that Lewis used a lizard to stand for one of the uh, the evils that humans perpetuate because it demeaned the lizard. Uh, so he had he had he had a critique, but he was overwhelmingly. And, uh, it, it was it, it led on actually to uh, Auden's Episcopal minister went to uh, interview C.S. Lewis and wrote an article. One of the few articles that was not really enthusiastic about Lewis, he, he said, well, Lewis doesn't know about existentialism. Lewis doesn't seem to care about modern authors. I don't know why people like him, even though my parishioner, W.H. Auden, who's, who's greatly celebrated, likes him. And, and Lewis, when the minister came to talk to him, was more interested in what Auden was doing and thinking than what the minister was doing. So, yes, a, a, a real broad uh, appeal. Um, the, the book ends... With with Lewis appearing on the cover of Time magazine, right? Yeah. With a uh, with with a, a very favorable account. Henry Luce, the editor of Time, liked uh, uh, Lewis, and then more, more <laughs> really interesting, his wife Claire Booth Luce, who had recently had a celebrated conversion herself to Roman Catholicism, for a while thought that she could bring the screw tape letters to the screen and actually purchased uh, movie rights. It didn't work out, but but it was it was the kind of access that you just it's hard to imagine today. Time magazine, the leading general periodical, mm. uh, uh, focused its attention on Lewis and and a favorable attention. Mm. He was learned. He was a great writer. He could communicate, and uh, the rest he left up to the Lord. And and those comp- that combination of traits maybe is what people should be pursuing today. 
you know, I've often said when I was teaching or preaching or speaking that if C.S. Lewis was my hero, and if you knew any dirt on Lewis, please keep it to yourself because you need one hero. <laughs> and that always solicits a little bit of laughter. Do you think sometimes that those of us who really are fans of Lewis go too far and put him on an altar where he should not be? Yes, yes, I do, actually. Uh, and I think it it's, uh, works against what Lewis was trying to do, which was to use the abilities God had given him to communicate as he thought best. And certainly the example of Lewis should be that those of us who come later think about what we can offer, and we try to offer it on those terms, rather than trying to imitate C.S. Lewis. There's a lot of bad C.S. Lewis imitation around, <laughs> not, as much, uh, not as much imitating his style, his, his approach. Deeply learned, deeply concerned about communication, deeply concerned about fresh, uh, sparkling writing. Those are the kinds of things that would be good for believers today to be imitating. And be careful. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a human being like everybody else. He had a fallen nature like everybody else. He was uh, and would have been the first to be horrified when you worship as a result. So try to keep that in mind. I'm preaching to myself. <laughs> <laughs> The book, by the way, by Mark Knoll is C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, 1935 to 1947. If you like C.S. Lewis, you're going to love this book. Hey, thanks for listening to Steve Brown, etc. And if you're enjoying the show, chances are your friends and family would too, right? So help us spread the word by sharing a link, clicking subscribe on YouTube. And if you think about it, drop us a review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, we're pretty much everywhere. Hey, is there one called Podblaster? I mean, it feels like there should be, right? But like no E in Blaster, just Blaster, Blaster, Blaster. Anyhow, that's how the colons do it. When Christ promised we could live life to the full, he didn't just mean eventually in heaven, because Jesus didn't come to save us from our humanity, but to restore it. Life with a capital L. Find it now on keylife.org slash store. What if you could start your day by hanging out in God's Word and with some of the most significant theologians, authors, and pastors ever? That's the idea behind the one-year devotional, God With Us. Find it now on keylife.org slash store. Hey, we're so glad you're with us. We're talking about C.S. Lewis, who once wrote, to love at all is to be vulnerable. <laughs> Which, of course, was Lewis' way of saying, don't forget to subscribe to the weekly Key Life email. <laughs> so do it for yourself. Do oh, it that for was C.S. Bad. Lewis. Now wait. And and visit keylife.org slash subscribe. That is so bad. I listen, I didn't write that. I just read it. Hey, listen. Shameless. <laughs> um 
Mark, I'm going to say something that's probably not even true, but as I read through this and I and I'm becoming more familiar a little bit with the timeline of of Lewis's earlier works and then later on, it seems like the original or the earlier stuff was designed for more for the smarter people, the academics and, you know, that kind of thing. So later on down the road, it was like just the average, you know, John Q. Public or whatever kind of thing when you get into mere Christianity and, and of course, the Chronicles and that kind of thing. Was was it that stuff, the those books that really propelled him a, across the across lines to the greatest amount of his popularity. And also on that note, was that when his popularity in the U S got, um, got bigger? Right. Exactly. I mean, he, he is known uh, to a small set of academics who appreciate his work uh, in the 1930s. It's with the publication of the screw tape letters, which came out a year later in America than in England <clears throat> that made him re- really popular. And then, and then, it was even later that the booklets were pulled together to uh, form Mere Christianity, and then beginning in 1950 or 51, when the Narnia Tales were published, it became uh, really popular. You do mention his ability to talk to ordinary people. I think there's a good story there, and one that uh, shows that Lewis could learn and be critical of himself. He was asked, uh, right at the start of the Second World War, to bring addresses to uh, uh, training centers for, for troops. And he reports that he, he uh, did this kind of work and the first few times just bombed hmm. disastrously because he was talking to the recruits as if they were a, a common room at Oxford University, one of the colleges. And he, he was successful in changing how he spoke without changing the basis from which he spoke. In other words, he, he kept a very clear sense of as Steve said earlier, the Christian basics, he wasn't trying to make anyone an Anglican, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, or Pentecostal, but he was presenting the Christian basics, but he was doing it in a way that could communicate to people who did not have an education. He later wrote an essay in which he said he thought it would be a great final exam for a seminarian to write about mm-hmm. a complicated Christian doctrine in words of one and two syllables that everyone could could understand. So mm-hmm. he had mm-hmm. to learn how to keep the foundation of real deep learning and yet to be able to communicate in ways that could address a population at large. And, wow. and obviously he learned his lesson, although it's worth noting he kept writing some academic. His, mm-hmm. his major academic work was a history of English literature <clears throat> in the 16th century without drama, it's only published, I think, in 1954 or 1955. So he kept he kept that mm. going, even while he was addressing the public at large. He, uh, by the way, paid a price for his uh, popularity among some of his colleagues. I would file it under jealousy, but uh, they filed it under something else. And that affected Lewis. I mean, he, um, he winced at that. And I find that kind of winsome, kind of attractive that he did. I understand that sort of thing. Yeah, you're popular. Everybody resents it. I mean, yeah. you can identify with Lewis. So, uh, <laughs> no, no, I know. No, I got I'm it. not I got saying it. that. No, I, got, I think we all heard that. But. <laughs> I heard it. 
<laughs> I get no respect <laughs> around here. It was just there. Uh, Mark, I, obviously with 35 to 47, that that's, those are the years that the book is concerned with, and uh, the Narnia books came post that. But just just curious how those landed in the States. Obviously, they're very popular now, but you know, social mores are different, you know, for for Christians in general. Was fantasy something that was like, oh, this is kind of dangerous? Or at that time, was it like, yeah, baptized imagination, this is all, you know, allegorical, we welcome this? Is there any kind of consensus around that kind of reception? Yes, I think they think there is. I, I do think that the imaginative uh, works that were shown first, actually, for the first book that Lewis published was in 1934, 35 in the U.S., the Pilgrim's Regress was a kind of allegory of how he had actually become a, a Christian, did not receive a whole lot of attention, in part because it was actually very learned, but also because of the medium. And when he, he did publish the, the Screw Tape Letters and then the uh, Space Trilogy, the Ransom Trilogy, there was nervousness. But I think because of the success of Narnia and then, of course, even the greater success of the, the Tolkien's work, then the, the Christian world thinks of fantasy as a, a, a good vehicle for expressing some basic Christian truth. And again, as I mentioned before, I think some of those who have written Christian fantasy have done well, and some who have done that have not done well. <laughs> so the, the, the genre, the, 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 the method was accepted, mm. but sometimes with good results and sometimes with bad results. Uh, Mark, uh, we've referenced Tolkien a couple of times, and uh, and also uh, you know uh, Lewis's effort to be, as you summarize it, deeply learned, theologically focused, and unusually creative. But he he uh, attempted those things, but had a group of uh, people that he you know bounced his writings off of. Talk some about the the helpfulness right. of that group. Right. Steve has, mentioned that, Steve has mentioned that uh, he did receive quite a bit of critique and, and envy and just a, a lack of understanding from academic colleagues, but he did have a smaller group, uh, maybe 10 to 15 people that met uh, regularly that he heard from and who would tell him that what he'd written was crap if they thought what he'd written was crap. <laughs> uh, they, they, met, uh, they met over uh, drinks uh, once a week or a couple of times a week, and that might have loosened a few tongues, but, but yes. Uh, <laughs> Lewis was keenly aware that if you thought of yourself as somehow godlike in what you wrote, you were in real trouble. And I actually closed the book with a poem that Lewis wrote about the dangers of someone who seems to succeed as an apologist. And it's, it's a very humble poem about that's the most dangerous point for a, Christ, for a person speaking for Christianity. You think you've been a success. And you, what you should realize is any success you've had is due to the grace of God working through the instrument that you have become. Mm. Mark, wow. we're out of time. I don't know what happened to this hour. It just flew by. We appreciate very much you writing this book, but also taking an hour out of a very busy schedule and spending it with us. Uh, hope we Thank can... You. Hope we can do this again. The book, C.S. Lewis in America, Readings and Reception, 1935 to 1947. 
They're better titles. That sounds boring, and it is anything but. Get this book and read it. Hey, thanks for listening to Steve Brown, etc. And if you're enjoying the show, would you help us let others know about it? You can share a link, click subscribe on our YouTube channel, or drop us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks much. What if you could start your day by hanging out in God's Word and with some of the most significant theologians, authors, and pastors ever? That's the idea behind the one-year devotional, God With Us. Find it now on keylife.org store. This is Pete Allenson, and if you're a guy, I want to show you how to recover and reclaim an intimate, growing relationship with your Heavenly Father. Check out Like Father, Like Son, How Knowing God as Father Changes Men. Available now at keylife.org store. Believer, I want you to remember that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And you will run out of sin before God runs out of grace. Grace, the real good news of the gospel. Find it now on keylife.org store. things about doing a program like this is that I get a chance to spend some time that I ordinarily wouldn't be able to spend with some of the people that I have admired from the distance. And Mark Knoll is certainly one of those. I'd met him before, but never been able to sit down and talk. And his insights are amazing uh, in a lot of areas and not just this one. He's been faithful He's lived on the edge, but he's been faithful to the primary verities of the Christian faith in the midst of his scholarship and the places where he worshiped and the places where he taught. And that was true of C.S. Lewis. Uh, One of the things that I love about C.S. Lewis is, of course, what he wrote. And I've read almost everything that he wrote, even some of the academic things, and I've And I'm very appreciative of the gifts that we've been talking about over the past hour. But there are things about C.S. Lewis that are different than that. For instance, he made a whole lot of money. And he gave away a whole lot of money. And nobody ever knew it. People were in need and they would get a check from him or money from him. And it was never reported, it was never waived, it was never in the press, and people didn't know it. And the way he took time to write to anybody who wrote to him, he answered every letter that had ever been sent to him. And uh, there is a book that you might want to read sometimes called Letters to an American Lady. Nobody is a nobody, but if you were going to use a colloquial description The lady to whom he wrote, and her name is never given, is a nobody. She's not somebody that could do anything for C.S. Lewis or help him or sell books or any of that. And yet over all those years, he kept that correspondence going. And I see that, and there are a pile of other things about Lewis that are like that. But even with all of that being said, I must be careful, and you must be careful too, because we have a tendency as human beings and sinful to create idols, 
and uh, pray and, and kneel before those idols. And nobody belongs on that altar except God. And so remember that C.S. Lewis was used, and he would say ditto to what I'm saying. Who's going to be on next week? Next week, our friend Ray Ortland is going to be with us, um, who's been with us before, and he's got a great new book out. I'm anxious to look at it, read it. It's titled, You're Not Crazy, Gospel Sanity for Weary Churches. It's going to be great. (laughs) Hey, you guys, join us same time, same place next week. Between now and then, don't do anything we wouldn't do, and that gives you a wide, wide berth. <laughs> Which you'll need after Thanksgiving. Exactly. <laughs> and speaking of Thanksgiving, the glorious day. Yeah, now listen. I need I need some ideas.